Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. D&D uh, began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. Because I, I, I think of how hard it was for women that looked like me to be to come into the service, and and they volunteered to come. Okay, mm -hmm. and so we not only had to contend with, um, first of all, coming into service and people didn't want us in the service, okay? So then we had to come in, contend with that, and then do the job, not, not the same, but we had to do the job better yeah. because we were held to a higher standard. And we ourselves held ourselves to a higher standard. We had to be better than we had to be better than other women. We had to be better than the men and still had to prove ourselves, still had to prove ourselves. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I am your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect educate, heal, and inspire. And every Monday, we are online on Zoom covering military topics, talking with veterans, uh, bringing authors on uh, to get as many stories as we possibly can. Recently, on a Monday night happy hour, we had on Phyllis J. Wilson, a 37-year Army veteran and president of the Military Women's Memorial, to talk about her service and what they're doing over at the MWM. Uh, and we also had Elizabeth Ann Helm Frazier, who's a board member with the Army Women's Foundation, uh, and she has a 25-year career. So between the two, and over, over 60 years in the military, um, both had incredible stories. So we thought we would take that live program 
uh, and bring it to you here on the Scuttlebutt as, as an edited podcast. You can watch this on YouTube. You can download the audio and listen to it while you're on your way to work. We were also joined later in the program by Charlotte McDaniel, author of Stories Untold, Oral Histories of Wives of Vietnam Servicemen. Um, and without further ado, enjoy the program. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Veterans Breakfast Club Happy Hour for Monday, March 14th. My name is Sean Hall. I'm the Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. I always say that I'm excited for every program, but I'm particularly excited for tonight uh, in recognition of uh, Women's History Month, we have two incredible Army veterans that I believe have a combined history in the Army of over 50 years experience uh, between them. Um, we have uh, nonprofits that we're going to be spotlighting, the Military Women's Memorial and the U.S. Army Women's Foundation, and hearing about their service as well, Phyllis Wilson uh, from Military Women's Memorial, and the other being Elizabeth Ann Helm Frazier, who goes by Liz. Uh, she'll be coming on to talk about the U.S. Army Women's Foundation. This article, I'm going to share my screen here, this article that came out today in Task and Purpose, if you haven't seen it yet, this is very interesting, 100 women have now graduated from the U.S. Army Ranger School. The 100th woman has now graduated from this school. One of them saying that it was the hardest thing that she's ever done, that she couldn't wait for it to be over, but said that the, the teamwork that is needed to complete this is top-notch. You can't do this alone. Um, and I thought that uh, I would get our, uh, Phyllis, we're going to go to you first tonight, but I thought I would get your thoughts on this as, uh, uh, and later, Liz, I want to hear your thoughts on this as well, as uh, this seems to be a, a big deal uh, It's for 100 women to graduate from the U.S. Army Ranger School. Phyllis, I want to give you a, a proper introduction, and I, and I should apologize to start, Phyllis, is that I, I was telling my grandmother this morning about this program saying, I'm going to be interviewing these two incredible women, and I shortchanged you. And I'm sorry, because I told her that you had two masters, two bachelors, and two associates. And you have three associates. So I'm sorry that I did that. I'll let her know that tomorrow uh, whenever <laughs> I talk to her in the morning. Um, but Phyllis is the president of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation. It's the only major national memorial honoring all women who have defended America throughout history from Revolutionary War to today. Uh, she served in the U.S. Army, uh, regular Army, and the Army Reserve for more than 37 years as a military intelligence voice intercept operator. I want to ask you a lot more about that here in a minute. Um, but you began as a private, and you culminated as a Chief Warrant Officer 5. You were the 5th Command Chief Warrant Officer for the U.S. Army Reserve. You were mobilized Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Operation During Freedom, deployed Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, you're a registered nurse. Uh, the degrees uh, we've, I've already mentioned, um, you were inducted in uh, 2017 into the Army Women's Foundation Hall of Fame. Uh, I, if I went over your, all your decorations and awards, it would probably take me another five minutes. Uh, but you also have eight children. I saw that at the end of your bio and I said, how do you have time to do anything? <laughs> but welcome to the program, Phyllis. It's great to have you. Thank you so very much. And, you know, Having eight kids, uh, I also came from a large family and the older kids help with the younger kids. It's just how families operate. But uh, I saved the best for last on the uh, list of what I do and what I have done and have 14 grandchildren now. The last two were born in October. So we continue to add to the population of the United States. Uh, yeah, I joined the army um, 
I'd been out of high school for a couple of years and was trying to forge my own way through college. And it was taking incredibly long because good thing for me, I had never heard of such a thing as a student loan. So I was self-funding, paying one class or two classes at a time to get through and realized this is going to take forever. Um, so stopped at the recruiters and as fate would have it, uh, my dad had been born and raised Amish, and the language that they were offering with an enlistment bonus in the early 1980s was German, because East Germany was there. We were all concerned about, you know, the Soviet Union coming through the fold of gap in Europe, and they needed people to sit with headphones and listen to what the East German military was talking about, what they were planning to do since they were on the front lines there for us. And uh, it just seemed like a perfect fit. So I got paid a bonus. I learned a great language out of Monterey, California for almost a year. And then after that lovely thing, listening to seals bark every morning, as any of you in the military know, if you get a good assignment, what's the next one? Probably not a good assignment. And that's exactly what happened. Well, I went over there with 3rd Armored Division, very proud to have been a member of the 3rd Armored Division. I can tell you, I froze my butt off more nights than I care to remember out in the field between reforgers and actual just being out there prepping and doing what we needed to do as a military intelligence battalion. Uh, so that's where it all started. Uh, did my four years, had met and married a guy out at uh, California, and we were both assigned to the same battalion, different companies. Had two, had our first two babies then, and uh, decided the two of us being active duty military with little rugrats like that did not work. And since he'd been in longer, it made sense that I uh, switched and I joined the Army Reserve and stayed with them for a total then of 37 years. But I went back to school, took advantage of what the, the military affords our young Americans, is, and that's education. So went back and did that. And uh, mixed and matched and had a total then of 23 years of active duty time and another 14 plus of that traditional, what we think of that one weekend a month, two weeks a year soldier. Man, uh, so did you come from a military family? No, my dad was Amish. Nobody in his family had served. And so you were the first person? That, that we know of. Now my mother's, my grandfather on my mom's side had served in World War I and he died before, well, um, before she was born, you know, so she, she never knew her father and she didn't hear much about him. And I don't recall her ever speaking about, and she's, I think had she, they never steered us towards the military that I have mm -hmm. two brothers and two sisters as well. And none of them, um, this is all very foreign information to them when we talk in the jargon that the military does. What did they think when you decided to enlist? My dad tried very hard to talk me out of it. I was, I mm. turned 21 in basic. So it wasn't like I was, you know, 17 or 18. I didn't need my a parental signature to join. But well, back in the day, when you flip through the recruiting book, you, it, it was in number sequence. And for those of us that are old enough before they keep changing the number sequence, 95 Bravo in the army was military police. And it was the first page I turned to uh, sort of to Liz's comment earlier was um, there was finally a woman on the page and she had a gun on her hip and the military police officer. And I'm like, oh, I'm all in. I want that. So that's what I had talked with the recruiter about, but I hadn't signed anything. And I went home. I told my dad about it. Um, 
And he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to go back to the station with you, thinking he could talk me completely out of it. But once we got back there and I showed him the page, we flipped just two more pages and we got to the 98 series, which was the signals intelligence. And that was the one that they said, oh, we could we could send you out to Monterey, California for a year. You'll learn German. And I, I can learn German because always drove my drove me crazy. My dad's one of 10 kids. And when we'd go to family reunions, they'd sit there and speak their Pennsylvania Dutch and laugh and laugh. And none of us had a clue what they were talking about. And I thought, I want some of that. I want a language that not everybody else speaks, you know, and uh, the rest was history. But then the wall came down in the late 80s, right? In 89, the Berlin Wall the, the, the came down and we no longer had a nation that was at our enemy that spoke German. And for my career field, my MOS, you had to have a foreign language. That was part of our requirement. And by then I had gone back to school and become a nurse. And then they said, what, you need another language. And I thought about Russian. I thought about Chinese. And I really didn't want to have to learn all new characters. And I mm -hmm. thought for my, my civilian job, what would be the best value added? And to me, Spanish was it. We have so many people that come into the hospitals and through the healthcare programs that speak Spanish. And I thought, God, that'd be wonderful if I could do that. And I'd say proficient because I'd use it. So I had that opportunity to go back to school one more time uh, and study Spanish. Well, you seem definitely like somebody who, who's been quite motivated for, for a very long time. How, how did you develop that? Was that something that was ingrained in you in your youth or is it like something that came naturally? Uh, hard work has always been just Part of my family. My dad is a roofer. His five brothers are roofers. My grandfather was a roofer. My brother is a roofer. And it didn't mean that as girls, especially in the 60s and 70s, that we were able to, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a girl. I don't have to. No. Every day after school, my mom would pick us up in the old wood-sided station wagon. We all remember those. And we'd, we'd ride over to my dad's work site. And those of us that were me, my two sisters were the girly girls. I'm the mean sister that would cut the hair off their Barbie dolls. So I was scrambling up to get up on the roof to be with my brothers who were younger than me, but were allowed on the roof and they didn't want me up there. So I would do that rather than walk around the, the perimeter of the house and pick up the paper from the bundles of shingles or the nails or the scraps from the shingles. That was not fun. I would rather be up there and do something with my dad, but we always... That was part of what it, we had to do. And then dad, once we were all done, he could come home, get a shower and sit down and, and have, have supper with us. And that was just it. We had a farm because in the winters in Ohio, uh, roofing was not a guaranteed, but he knew he had seven mouths to feed. And so there was always something, a garden, uh, chickens, goats, ducks, whatever mm -hmm. it was, we had them. And that meant a lot of, you know, that doesn't just happen. Somebody's got to get up early and go out and take care of all of those animals. I feel like a lot of tonight is, is about um, finding women role models. And who, who was yours when you were growing up? You know, I, I was one of those that just looked for anybody that inspired me. And I was never, um, whether it was by skin color or, or gender, it didn't matter to me. If it was somebody that I just saw something in it that I'm like, I want to be like that. 
that too. I mean, I remember John Wayne. I thought he was pretty awesome. But also Liz, as he asked me that, one of the first names that popped in my head was Diane uh, Carroll. She was just so amazing to me. And Can you tell me, I mean, I, I maybe yes. I'm too young. I, I know. is way too young to know Diane Carroll. <laughs> way too young. She was a nurse on a television Julia. Julia, yes. She had her own show, African-American Woman. Just, and maybe that's part of, you know, I always thought I wanted to be a nurse or a doctor, but I remember seeing Diane Carroll on television and the things that she, even then it was very overt racism and she, she bore it with grace. Mm -hmm. Of course it was a television show, but nonetheless, I mean, she didn't have to put herself into that, but I remember seeing her and how she was, I think she was a widow and she was raising her her children on her own but I mean to see her and and other people in my family that were nurses I just she was one of those people I'm like that's the kind of person I want to I mean there's that's Julia that's Julia mm-hmm. well Diane Carroll but yes when you asked that her name popped right into my head she said it was so many of us mm-hmm. What was the army like whenever you first joined? And I have a follow-up question to this, but uh, how was it when you were you enlisted? Well, you know, I went to basic training in 1981, which was not that long after they were really mm-hmm. allowing men and women to train together. And so I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. It was a, uh, we were told it was part of a pilot program, but in a company, there are four large groups, about mm, 40 to 50 people in each of these platoons. I don't know what services I'm talking to, so I don't want to, you know, get too specific, but about 200 soldiers total, three of these were men, and one of these groups was women, so about 50 women, 150 men, and we all trained together, we did everything, everything the same, we did PT together, all of that, the one of the big differences I remember, and um, it's not that I'm a slacker, I really am not, but I'm looking for smarter ways to do almost anything. (laughs) And on the 17 mile road march back from qualifying our weapons, and I'm a skinny, I weighed like 105 pounds then. And I'm carrying, because women are weaker in their upper torso, our uh, leaders, our drill sergeants said that all the women on the whole walk back needed to carry their weapons out in front of them. Whereas the guys had it slung over their shoulder and just walking back, their arms were resting. Well, my arms got really tired. You can't, uh, nobody, I don't care how fit you are, try to walk for 17 miles, not, you know, your weapon out in front like that. So I ended up sticking the pistol grip of my weapon in the front of my pants at the belt, you know, into the belt to sort of help take the weight off from it. Mm. Real sergeants see everything and they've seen everything trick in the book. So of course, eh, they caught me pretty quickly. And then you got to put that weapon on the back of your hands, get down and knock out your push-ups, then get back up. Never let your weapon touch the ground because you will lose it for that. But that was where we started, uh, basic training and then going to my first uh, training, which was really not the normal army, going out to Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. It was like a true 
California college vibe for almost a year. And then I end up in the real army in Europe protecting the fold the gap. That was my rude awakening. Um, but, you know, having grown up with brothers and being a tomboy and just not taking a lot of guff off too many other people, not in a mean way, just, you know, I, and I never was thinking that somebody was telling me I couldn't do it because I was female. Mm-hmm. Although if anybody ever did, then it was like, okay, challenge accepted. Now I got to show you. So like for me, the best I could um, aspire to was becoming a paratrooper, jumping out of airplanes. And it took a long time until I got finally found a commander that was willing to give me one of those coveted uh, jump school slots to let me go down to Fort Benning to, to do that. I was 32 by the time I was able to go. So for me to see these, these women now that are going through and uh, completing ranger school, special forces, all of these other programs that they're hard. I mean, the washout rate for the men is very high. So it takes a special kind of person, men or woman, to, to get through some of those programs. So I think they started it around 2016 was our first graduates from Ranger School. So it's taken really five and a half years to get to that 100 mark. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot in there. And, and probably like one of the main questions I wrote down for tonight is reading through this, uh, the 100 women who have now graduated, uh, one of them mentioned that. Uh, I don't want anybody to tell me that I can't. So I was going to ask you, because it, it seems like you already alluded to this, is how many times were you told you can't and that just doubled your motivation to do it? So those that told, would tell me that I couldn't, it was, um, well, like I said, I'm five foot six. And when I joined the army, I weighed 104 pounds. <laughs> I was underweight. And so I had to drink an extra glass of chocolate milk and an extra serving of mashed potatoes at lunch and at dinner. But, which sounds like oh, great. You got more food. Well, imagine you're only weighed 104. Now you have to eat a tray of food and now go back and get this and show your drill that you you've got it, but they still don't take any pity on you. You still get run right after you've had a meal. Right. So now you've got, think of it, chocolate milk and mashed potatoes jostling around in your stomach. And now you get to go for a couple miles on a run. Hmm. Fun. But, um, the more that the people that didn't know me that would say just by appearance, oh, she can't possibly do that. Um, I just always took that with a grain of salt. I had always heard that coming up mm-hmm. that, you know, I was, people thought I was the kid sister to my younger brothers, but I was always trailing around with them. We were always playing ball, doing whatever. So being told you can't for me just galvanizes. It does not cause me to go into shutdown mode. That's for sure. Um, and you also talked a bit about that deployment that sort of like, that was the point where it was like, oh, wow, this got real very quickly. Can you talk a bit about that, that first time? Sure. And, and being a German linguist in Germany was certainly beneficial um, and I German heritage. So there were many times when we were stationed there that uh, some German would, could, would walk up to me and ask me directions in their town. And I would have to answer them back that, you know, sorry, I'm not from here, you know, but I fit in nicely. And my husband, another American soldier, um, he was always concerned that if in fact we did get overrun and we're up on hilltops with radios and antennas up there listening, right? Mm-hmm. So we were going to be on the forward line on the wrong side of the bad guys in no time if they did in fact come through. 
And he would always encourage me and never did it, but he would ask me, say, please just wear, put in the bottom of one of your duffel bags that you take when you go out to the hilltop. Um, very classic German attire. And if it really gets that bad change out of your uniform, put on the civilian clothes and just walk away. And I'm like, would you tell any of your men in the military to just change into civilian clothes and walk away? He's like, no, but not only are they not women, they're not my wife. And I said, but, but I have to live with my honor for the rest of my life. I can't do that. You know, I'm not, I'm not leaving my team. There were only four of us on a hilltop. You can't leave them. You've just decremented your team by, by 25%. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's just one of those things that you stick through it all. Uh, this is more of a bigger question, but over the course of your career, and I want to I want to dive into a couple of your other deployments. But how did you how did you see the army start to change as as you were continuing your career? Sure, in the eighties, mm, you know, we were so called the gals, and there were things that we weren't supposed to do. That was a guy's job, and and I tell you, it's completely the reverse now. I mean, guys won't. It's it's. For me, I'm 61 years old and, you know, my dad still gets car doors for my mother to this day. My sons get car doors and open doors for me to this day because I'll stand there <laughs> waiting for them. And they're both, they're soldiers, but I still expect when I'm a civilian, the courtesy afforded to me as a woman. And that's how I was taught. And it's not the same for everybody, but that's my experiences. And so to watch now where even like on an airplane, some gal that is five foot four and she's got a suitcase, she's trying to get into the overhead and a young strapping man standing right behind her will stand there and almost make a face, but never once even give an arm to help put it up there. I'm like mm -hmm. what has happened here? So, so I think this idea that we want equality is, is one of the things we've got to be mindful of. What, what are we asking for? Yes, I want the opportunities to serve in the exact same capacities. The, the MOSs, the career fields that I can do are, are for me. If I, if I have the aptitude and the desire, it's just like any guy does. But I think what we've watched sort of do this, this transformation over time is, is a question that I think is for another much different kind of conversation night of, you know, are we going too far? You know, is married to a Green Beret. Those are 12 person teams. They can be out in the most austere environment for a long period of time. Um, and, and young men and women, you know, are young men and women. And sometimes those group dynamics can go totally haywire if you're not mindful of, of staying on task and on focus of the mission. And I think we ask a lot of our young men and women on what they're what they're capable of doing and uh, to park anything and everything else that has to do with just being a human being while you're on mission. And and clearly we have a lot of work to do when we talk about, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault, you know, those kind of things are, are things that human nature sadly takes the, the forefront on some of our soldiers. Put. Um, thinking about what you were doing in Germany uh, and then knowing German and Spanish, how was it then when you went to for Iraqi freedom or Operation Iraqi Freedom? It, that's a very different part of the world speaking a completely different language. What was your role there? 
Yeah, I went over with uh, the Joint Special Operations Command, so I never felt safer, to be honest with you. I mean, I had Delta, I had SEALs, I had Green Berets, I had all of these incredible operators around me. And uh, I really didn't go outside of the wire that much. I was their intel support. I was that the senior intel analyst that would send these guys to potentially injury or death every night. And so not a lot of sleep for me or my team. Uh, and it just was one of those things where, you know, you, you go in there and you do the best you can and you send these guys to go get the bad guys, uh, usually about 10 helicopter assaults in 10 different locations in Northern Iraq. And, um, and then you sit there from the jock, the Joint Operating Center, and you would watch the, the drone feeds and watch these guys going into the houses and just pray to God one of them doesn't explode, um, that these guys don't get shot or killed. Um, and once that's all done, you know, try to de-escalate your, your whole body in very short order because now you've got about four hours before you're back at it. Because uh, now the guys that they have grabbed, they're putting them on helicopters and bringing them back to a detainee place for interrogators to start the questioning. And I need to read those reports in four or five hours to start figuring out what can we do with this that can send our guys to the right place the next night. So it was a seven day a week, four month rotation. And, and I know that wasn't nearly as long. I have one of my sons that did the 15 month instead of my four months, but I would go four months over four months back home to McDill air force base and four months right back in the box. And I think in a way I would have rather have just stayed because you can't let go. Even once you're back in the States for a period of time, when you know, you're just about ready to go right back. But it, it was, um, is life-changing to say the least. And yes, we did have memorial services uh, along the way. And then you always question, what could I have done different? What could I have done better? What did I miss? You know, and that's something you, you carry for the rest of your life. Would you say that was your hardest deployment? Um, one of those times that I was in Iraq was, yeah, definitely hard, mm -hmm. harder. Um, and, and, you know, oddly enough, like, I have one of my sons that I was able to promote in Iraq to E5 to Sergeant. He was able to, to come over to me. He, he worked on helicopters. So the helicopter was coming over to Balad and he was able to spend a couple of days with me. It was the first time in his five years in the army that he actually had had Thanksgiving dinner with somebody in his family because he'd been just all over the place. Uh, you know, he joined in 2004 and this was just one of those you know, crazy young men or, or young women in, in our nation that after 9-11 raised their hand and said, send me, I'm ready. And uh, so it was, it was fortunate. We were able to promote him and have Thanksgiving dinner all at the same time. You seem to have started a trend within your family because of, of the eight children you have, four, your four sons are, are all serving or have served? Four of them, I have five sons total. Four five. of them are all combat veterans. Uh, two of them are still on active duty and two are in the army reserve. Wow. And boy, thinking about when you told your dad, I'm enlisting. And when they came to you and after your time in the army, and then they said, they're going to enlist. Were, how did you feel? What did you feel like you needed to tell them to prepare them for the army? 
Well, one went Air Force. So anybody in the Air Force here, you <laughs> try to raise them right. He's they, still invited to Thanksgiving dinner. He, he is. He is. <laughs> Maybe two grandsons. So I, what can I say? I, I still, I love him dearly. Um, but he also does close air support um, for the operators on the ground. So he totally gets it and he knows what he's doing. And I, I love that. The first one that joined actually didn't tell me until he had done it because <laughs> I think he was afraid. Uh, the second one that joined was just running. He needed a direction. <laughs> and I told him, here's your two choices, you know, and so he, he joined the army and who would have thought now he's a first sergeant in a, down in, in Savannah, Georgia. And boy, he, he, he was one of those kids who just wasn't sure I was going to get it. Boy, the army put the, the fear of God in him or something. And he has just been an outstanding addition to the United States army ever since. I also want to get over to Liz hear about her service. And then I feel like we could have you both sort of talk about the, the two organizations that you're both a part of. Jumping over to Elizabeth and Helm Frazier. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for joining BBC Happy Hour tonight. Uh, you are a retired Army Master Sergeant. You joined around the same time as Phyllis in, in 1981. Um, you were uh, uh, commended uh, throughout your entire career uh, as an expert in, in personal uh, personnel and career counseling, uh, outstanding leadership, recruitment, retention skills. Um, you uh, had a variety of assignments, high profile positions throughout the entirety of your 25 year career. Um, I, I wanna ask you, how did you uh, enlist? Why did you decide to? Well, thank you guys very much. And uh, you know, you put me behind Phyllis, come on. Okay. Um, so I, I'm originally from Largo, Florida, the community of Ridgecrest. So, hey, Largo, Florida. And I had finished high school and I was one of those kids that ran from the recruiter because I was not going in the army. I was going to be a architect. And this was the, the 80s and things happened. I, I actually went to St. Petersburg Junior College at the time and, and that didn't work out. And so my mother being who she is, uh, you gotta get a job or go in the military. Actually, she was favoring me for, to get a job, okay? And I was trying to pay for college on my own and this just was not working. And then I was looking for a job and just happened to be in an office one day and I said, well, how am I gonna get the experience to get a job if nobody will hire me? And the, the receptionist at the desk just looked up and said, oh, join the army. And I was like, what? And so two years later uh, in 1981, I, I joined the army. I, I actually did the delayed entry program. So I, I had about 10 months um, before I actually went in. And I went in uh, August of August 6, 1981. Oh, this is yeah. the day, this picture was taken the day that you enlisted. Yeah, and we had been to the, uh, been to the, um, the field to do some type of exercise. So then they tell us, oh, you're going to take pictures. That's, you know, and I look a mess. Okay. <laughs> I look a mess, you know, 
And they just said, they just shuffled us right on in. They put this thing over us, this, this jacket. It was kind of like a one piece. And you went in, tried to do something with your hair and took the picture for basic training. And I, I was at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Wow. And I hate to say this, but this was two months before I was born. So oh my God. <laughs> you, you, you were about to, you had already lived yeah. a life at this point that I'm sure so much yeah, more to come. I, I was, uh, I was 19 and I was going to be 20 the next month. My birthday is September. I, I turned 20 September 14th of that year. Was there a point soon after you enlisted that you were like, what did I get myself into? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I, I, I tell you, uh, when I decided to go into the military, I had to tell my mother and I knew that phone was going to ring. I knew that. OK, I had to tell my mother and she was not happy with, with my decision. Uh, I am the oldest of five and there's a brother right behind me and he was going in two weeks before me and they were not they were happy that he was going. And they were not happy that I was going, okay? But it was my grandfather, the late Johnny Davenport, who was a World War II veteran. He cooked in, in, in the army. He said to me, he said, you have to make the decision on what you wanna do with your life. Your, your parents will be fine. You have to make the decision. Do not let them talk you out of it. Because my dad was going to try to talk me out of it. My mom was already mad because my dad was not talking me out of it. And so my grandfather, Johnny Davenport, really came to my defense. And he said to me, he said, if you go in the army, three things will happen. Number one, you will go in and you'll do things and be things that you will never experience here in the civilian world. Number two. If you go in the army, you need to learn everything that you can so that you come out a better person. And number three, if you decide to stay for 20 years, I can guarantee that you'll get a government check for life. And, th and that was literally what, what I would always think about when it would be those difficult times. Um, that I that I was going in because I was I was doing things you know you know who who throws a grenade I, I never threw a grenade I mean really <laughs> so yeah well it, those difficult times can you tell me what was the first difficult time that you hit that you questioned that you said maybe maybe this isn't for me or did you push forward and say I'm going to do this uh, basic training I mm -hmm. had uh, basic training at Fort Dix New Jersey. And I thought they had imported all of the sand from Florida to Fort Dix, New Jersey. Cause I, I'm just like, what, where did all this sand come from? I mean, just, and I had a very difficult time. I could run, I could do sit-ups. I had a very difficult time doing push-ups. In fact, I was recycled because I could not do push-ups. So when I got to my second unit, uh, unit after being recycled, there was a senior drill sergeant, and the senior drill sergeant is like your parent. You know, this this person can put the fear of God in you, okay? But also like a parent taught you, 
And at the time, my senior drill sergeant was Sergeant First Class Martin Pate III. And there was several of us uh, women that could not do the push-ups correctly because of the upper body strength that we don't did not have. And that was difficult. I mean, because you know, who who running around doing push-ups? You know, nobody's running around doing push-ups, you know. And he would come on Sundays after you know his family time and they went to church, come to the barracks, get us, and give us uh what we called uh extra extra training in push-ups. We would run, drop, do push-ups, run, drop, do push-ups. Now I could run like the wind because I ran high school track. I could do sit-ups, no problem. Push-ups, however, I could not do. And he told us, you can do this. And for like a month, that's all we did. Every time he said, every time you see me, drop and give me 10. And so at one point, I think he just planted himself at one place. And so every time we saw him, even if it was out the corner of our eyes, we had to drop and do 10. One of the best trainings that I, I ever had. That was the first thing that I overcame because I passed the PT test and then went on to my advanced assignment. And where did I go? Fort Jackson, South Carolina, where they moved the dirt and the sand from Fort Dix to Fort Jackson with the heat. I'm, I, I said, I'm just not winning here, okay? Yeah. But Sergeant First Class Martin Pick the Third is now Command Sergeant Major, retired Martin Pate the Third, and I still call him Drill Sergeant, okay? Because mm -hmm. you know the Drill Sergeant can put the fear of God in, okay? I, mm -hmm. you know, and so it was so funny because one day I we were talking and and he's now a Command Sergeant Major, and I'm like. Okay, drill sergeant, I got you. And somebody said to him, well, why is she calling you a drill sergeant? He said, because that's my soul. And she knows what she, what she has to call me. And so even to this day, he lives down in Aberdeen, North Carolina. So if you listen, drill sergeant, hey, um, he lives down there and he's one of my biggest supporters um, mm -hmm. throughout the rest of my career. He, he's always been there great just just a great guy to know back to that question of, of role models would you say he was probably one of your first role models into the army in into the army yes i i had role uh role models um as as a kid you know my my mother my my grandparent my grandparents were great mm -hmm. role models they were my mother's my mother we were very unique kids because my mother had two sets of parents and and then my dad's parents. So up until about age 10, I thought everybody had three sets of grandparents because you know we we had two sets of we had my mother's parents and then my dad's parents. So I thought I thought that's how it was. Everybody got three sets of grandparents. So um and my grandparents were civil rights uh volunteers, civil rights leader. My my grandparents, Chester and Corrine Ditton were registered voters in 1956. And yes, they were black people, <laughs> uh, but they were registered voters. My, my dad's parents, Lige and Trudy Bellhelm, he, he had his own uh, landscaping business and my grandmother, Trudy Bell, was a school teacher. 
my grandparents in New York, Johnny, Johnny and Willie Mae Davenport. Um, she was a maid, uh, and he worked as uh, as for a superintendent doing buildings after he had come out of the service. And so these were strong people, strong, faithful people that instilled in us service. And so I often tell people that if you were to test our blood, the DNA would come back service because that's all that we know. I, you know, we, we just, you talk about child labor laws, my mother would have been arrested. We were like little kids running around working, you know? Uh, but that's, that's what was instilled in us was, was service. And so they were actually, you know, whatever a role model was, that was them because my, my parents were divorced um, and my mother got up every morning and, and went to work and, and said, hey, you know, you got to get up, get yourselves dressed and get to school. And at one time we walked to school and then after that we had to ride the bus. But I, after, I often tell people, I never remember seeing my mother sick, never, hmm. um, because she was always going and always teaching us to keep, keep it going. Whatever mm -hmm. you got to do to get it done, get it done, period. Um, and so that, that was instilled in us. So when you got to actually having a drill sergeant, it was probably pretty lax. Um, except for the, the running and the push-ups <laughs> and the getting up at three o'clock in the morning, okay? Um, I probably, I, I was pretty disciplined because my mother was, was a disciplinarian. I mean, she, you know, whatever she said, hey, we did it. <laughs> so, what did you, what was your MOS? I initially came in as a 70, at the time it was a 75 echo personnel action specialist. And, and, then, for, and for me, I'm a civilian. What, what is that? It's, it's in the personnel uh, human resource field. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I, I always knew that I, I was not going to stay in that field because I was looking for um, something more challenging. I wanted to do something more of service not hmm. saying that that was not service, okay? I, I just, I wanted to, to be more than, than that. Uh, and I also wanted to get promoted because I was told by one of the drill sergeants when I was at basic training that I was not gonna make it past six years. And- The first person I to was, tell you you couldn't, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I was not going to get past the rank of E4. <clears throat> excuse me and that also stayed with me mm -hmm. and so I finally I got into re-enlistment best job to have in the whole military is a U.S. Army career counselor I'm just saying that is okay <laughs> because it enabled me to stay in contact with not only soldiers but soldiers' families, and you're helping them make a decision that's going to affect the, the rest of their lives or the, the mm -hmm. six years of their life, whether they stay on active duty or go into the reserves or the National Guard. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, you are helping keep the force 
populated. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that that's what I thought that I, I was doing and I was good at. Okay. Plus you get all of these benefits. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that was important to me was getting an education because I had gotten all of my degrees while I was on, on active duty. What do you think made you so good at being able to work with people that closely? Because I was the oldest of five, okay? And you gotta have negotiating skills. You gotta have uh, all kind of, because you know, when you're the oldest kid, all the rest of the kids try to gang up on you, mm-hmm. okay? And when you're the oldest kid, whatever the other kids do, it's your fault, okay? Yeah, it is, okay? True. And 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 the oldest kid, you know, they got, your parent tells you, well, you're the oldest. It's your fault, because you're the oldest, okay? And so I was already good at that, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I love that. I, I, I split my time as a youth between my dad's place and my mom's. And my mom's, I was the youngest. And I got away with everything. And my dad's, I was the oldest. And I got blamed for everything. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, you become kind of this negotiator uh-huh. and, and, and you kind of, and then you got to put the hammer down. Cause when, when you're the oldest, you know, you, you got to be that when your parent is not there, mm-hmm. you got to be that disciplinary and you, you got to you got to bring it. Well, especially okay. recruitment and retention, which I mean, really recruitment, retention. I mean, those are two extremely difficult from everybody I've talked to within that field, very difficult field to be in recruitment. That's a recruiting. And yeah. I was in retention. Right. Um, <clears throat> retention. There was, there was a saying, if, if the economy is bad, you have no problem with people staying on activity. Hmm. If the economy is good, then you kind of will, will have a have a problem. But I, I tell you, by I, I think by by the sixth or seventh year, most service members know, hey, I'm gonna stay in this or I'm not gonna stay in it. Because it gives you a sense of identification of who I am now. You, mm-hmm. You've been in long enough. You you kind of kind of got your own going, and and so now you're kind of like, okay, I'm either going to stay in and do this and retire, or I'm going to go ahead and and get out and maybe join the reserves or national guards. Did you stay in that uh, MOS throughout your entire career? Well, when I um, after the. So I stayed a personnel um, action specialist for six years. Mm-hmm. And then I reclassified, retrained, and became a Army career counselor. And I, I, stayed, I stayed with that until I retired. It's an interesting thing because a lot of the, I think a lot of the veterans we talked to have spent so much time in, in I would say, deployed or in unit. Um, but what did you... What did you learn about the American soldier, male or female, over those years of talking with people about their careers? Uh, you, you got stories before we would get stories. Yeah. I learned that no matter, male or female, black or white or Hispanic or, or 
Asian or Native American, <clears throat> we were in a all volunteer army. And this country means so much that they just did not have a problem in stepping up and volunteering to defend the red, white, and blue. Was it about that for you when you first started? No. And as oh yeah, that, okay. No, no. Mm -hmm. When I when I when I first came in, it was 
Ah, uh, man. Um, I'm I'm a benefactor. I that is such an emotional thing for me right now, um, because I I I think of how hard it was for women that look like me to be to come into the service and and they volunteered to come okay mm -hmm. and so we not only had to contend with um first of all coming in the service and people didn't want us in the service okay so then we had to come in contend with that and then do the job not not the same but we had to do the job better because yeah. we were held to a higher standard and we ourselves held ourselves to a higher standard we had to be better than we had to be better than other women we had to be better than the men and still had to prove ourselves still had to prove ourselves hey um i'm just gonna break in here this is todd and i just want to i'm smiling the whole time you and phyllis are talking because I'm just so happy that we at the Veterans Breakfast Club don't do a popularity contest because according to all the chats that I'm getting from people, you would win hands down as our most popular veterans we've had in a long time. It, this is just, it is like, you know, our mission is to educate and inspire as well as to heal and connect. The education and the inspiration are just off the charts tonight. But I also wanted to introduce Charlotte McDaniel, who's a friend of mine and an author. And she and I have been corresponding a bit about a book that she's written here, and I'm gonna share the cover, uh, which is Stories Untold, Oral Histories of Wives of Vietnam Servicemen. And uh, Charlotte comes from a military family, and her book is just a beautiful example of something that we talk a lot about at the Veterans Breakfast Club, and that was that is that when, and both of you have brought this up, that when one member of the family joins the service, the other members are impacted. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of like everybody, everybody gets an education, everybody in the family, if they don't know anything about the army, suddenly they know a lot about the army because their sisters in it or their, you know, brothers in it or their, their aunts in, the, in it or, you know, daughter. Um, Charlotte wrote a book about the wives of those who, uh, whose husbands served in Vietnam. Charlotte, are you still with us here? I am, indeed I am. I, I wouldn't leave because the stories that Liz and Phyllis told were just fascinating. Kudos all around. Oh, it was wonderful. So Todd, thank you. Um, yeah. I, I want, do you want me to go, go ahead? ahead. I just, no, you go. you go. I wanted these ladies to know, I want, you know, I get the, I'm a member of the Veterans Breakfast Club and I think Todd does such, and with Sean's help, does such a fabulous job of you know, I could go on all night about that, but I saw the listing where you two were going to be speaking and I asked if I could come because I want to ask you a question and then I'll tell you why. I'm on a mission to get some recognition for the wives who were married to Vietnam servicemen. Now, when I did this book, I'm a Gold Star family member, as Todd said, and I had gone to several reunions and I heard stories of the wives that parallel what you're talking about that was going on in the service. So in a way, the book, the narratives in the book are really the home side, if you will, of what was going on on the war front. But to a woman, the only thing they all said in common was 
thank you so much for coming and talking to me because no one has ever asked. There were literally of these literally 35 women that I ended up talking to. And the interviews went from 45 minutes to three hours. I mean, you know, incredible stories, but no one wanted to hear about them. They, you know, the, their husbands would come back from Vietnam. They would sort of jump into doing what they had to do with their lives and move forward. And at no point in time did they ever have a chance to talk about how that whole experience was for them and how they stepped up to the plate as Todd is saying, because they're part of that whole family and the way it affected them their extended family, their children. And it was absolutely amazing. But to me, what was so striking was what a service they provided for our country. Because the husbands I had a chance to talk to, and there were six, of course, who didn't have husbands who came back, but several of them had husbands that wanted to join in on the interview. They brought pictures and maps and stories to show me where they were and the letters they had written to their wives. It was really wonderful. But they said, I could never have done what I did, flying a jet, landing a helicopter in the middle of Da Nang without the support of my wives. I knew that because things were battened down at home that I could go out and do my job. So I have been trying to figure out a way to get some recognition for these women, because as, you, as we all know, Vietnam was sort of ignored. We're just now getting to the point of looking at the recognition for the men and I went to a reunion in 2015 when the first POW MIA flag was flown for the Air Force. And that was my history with the, the military. So, you know, we're, we're coming at this late. It's been over 50 years. But as I said to Todd, I'm kind of on a mission to see what I can do. So the question to you is, do you have a suggestion of how I might go forward to do that? A contact, a branch. I mean, it just seems to me that to say thank you is not asking too much for these women. Well, wow. No, not even close yeah. to being adequate. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> Where do you live, Charlotte? I live in Pittsburgh. I, I live close to Todd. Okay. So the Military Women's Memorial that you guys can see. Right. I'm, I, I saw that. In, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's at the entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. And we, we do a lot of programming there, uh, conversations, both physical and virtual. And I okay. think be one of those lovely series to have, we do, we have nearly 2000 oral histories in our archives going back to women. Oh my. But yeah. And not just women that wore a military uniform, because in World War I, not many women were allowed to, but right. the USO and the YMCA and the women of the YWCA. And in World War II, the American Women's Voluntary Services that Betty White, Golden Girls, Betty White was yes. one of those women that signed up and spent four right. years doing that. Um, and, and I got to say, those jobs, well, well clearly needed. Um, and the USO, even to this day, you know, until last August, uh, there were women assigned with the USO in Afghanistan, and their stories are told in our database as well. But I really think that so often, like for me, when my sons were overseas, were deployed, I was okay with them, especially, I guess, being a military person myself, with them being on their missions in Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen, um, until about a week or two before they were scheduled to come home. And that's when the nightmares would begin. I'd heard so many gold star yeah. families talk about the loss of a son or a daughter 
just days and weeks before they were scheduled to come home anyway. And that just, it always stuck in my head and I would have these horrible dreams and really wasn't fit to be tied until I heard from them that they were safely back either in Germany or back in the United States. Um, and when my, my, my husband went over with the first Gulf War in 90, he was with 82nd Airborne. And from then on, I mean, you'd wake up in the middle of the night and thank God for CNN. You'd turn the television on and you're watching to see what's happening and hoping to God there's never a knock on your front door yourself. And, and so these women had to have been carrying that, I'm guessing, when you did the oil. Oh, exactly. They told stories about that staff car and oh, dreads. I mean, there were women who, there was one woman who moved to Chicago to be near her family. And there was a building that she said she couldn't walk around because she had seen a staff car there two or three days before, unrelated to her. And for weeks she had nightmares. I mean, that, yeah, you know, I, mean, yeah. I did not mean to interrupt you, but it, they, no, the stories it. they told were just incredible. These stories need to be told because while it's emblematic of the Vietnam War, it's emblematic of every war. And those yes. to guard the home front when the wash machine breaks, the kid breaks That's an right. arm, runs That's a right. four degree fever, and you if nowadays when you do have a chance to either do a video call or a phone call with your loved one overseas, which you didn't have that benefit. Didn't have that. That's right. But you never, when I was left back home with kids while my husband was someplace, you never told them that kind of stuff because you didn't need them to worry about that. So you kept That's it right. yourself. Kept it inside. Exactly. Yeah. And you didn't have Phyllis, that. one of the one yeah. of the chapters in this book is the horizontal Christmas tree. The Air Force yes. wife couldn't get the tree to stand up straight, and she tried four times and it kept falling over. So I and the story was hysterical and, and poignant at the same time. So I called it the horizontal Christmas tree. It was a story of how they managed and tried to make all the, you know, symbolically all the trees stand up straight, and it just was impossible to do everything. You know, what a I mean, it was a burden and it was a pleasure, but what they did was amazing. And it is literally the only book about women from Vietnam. It's I mean, I think that's a sad statement. I'm just so how can we get some commemoration for them? Can we can we log into your gig in uh, Arlington? Or I mean, I'm not let's, clear. Let's connect. You and I connect. And I think too, okay. this is all services. And, and our memorial, unlike like Liz and I, Liz is one of our ambassadors for the right. Women's Memorial. Mm -hmm. But I also serve on the board, as does Liz, on the Army Women's Foundation. We both have been inducted into the Army Women's Foundation Hall of Fame. And so these are right. two, certainly just army, but I'm guessing you didn't speak to just army. Why? Oh, no, no, no. I've got a representation from every single military branch, including the Coast Guard. And awesome. I also told the printer publisher I was not going to print and publish until I also had persons of color. It is every single grouping that's represented across the Vietnam War. Yeah. This yeah. has been over 50 years and there's absolutely yeah. no recognition, not even a letter. You know, wives and families now get a letter and sometimes when the husband well or the spouse retires the other spouse is able to come and be there and they get a pin kind of like the you know i have the eagle scout pins that i wore as a mother nothing for vietnam absolutely yeah. nothing it's just so sad but let's talk yeah let's 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 do something okay hey thank you so much and todd thanks for making this possible girl i loved your stories kudos ladies wonderful stories great charlotte you will email me and i'll pass you on to uh Liz and Phyllis. Phyllis and Liz. Thank you so yeah. much. And the title of the book. The title of the book is Stories Untold, The Oral Histories 
of the wives of Vietnam servicemen, over 35 women, all branches, live all over the US, wonderful women, absolutely amazing women. What we were talking about with with Charlotte also sort of leads us into the organizations. Um, I think we could start with the uh, uh, the mil women's military memorial. Uh, Phyllis, it, it's a beautiful memorial that's behind you on your screen, um, mm. and uh, and I want to pull up some some pictures of it here on my on my PowerPoint. Here I'll share my screen in a minute, but I wanted to uh, ask you as the president, uh, what is what is your mission, and and uh, how did this beautiful monument come to be? Yeah, well, thanks again. So the front curved wall, any of you that have visited Arlington National Cemetery, you've seen it, but there are so many people that think it's just a curved wall and they have no idea that behind it is 33,000 square feet of incredible education center. So the curved wall was built in 1932. It was the tail end of the uh, memorial project. As you can see, that's Arlington House at the top of the hill, all of the grave markers behind. Uh, and about halfway between the memorial and Arlington House at the top of the hill is the Kennedy uh, grave site. So it's, it's just a stunning place. And uh, in the 1980s, finally, Congress passed a public law approving the creation of a military women's memorial somewhere in the greater DC area. This is a picture from before we found it. And it was a retaining wall and that was just holding a berm. But when Brigadier General uh, Wilma Vaught Air Force first stood up there on that top of that hill, she said, it, and it was falling apart. And she said, this is just waiting for us. And so it was dug out behind there. And we have like a 200 seat, had been a 200 seat theater 220 foot long storytelling, starting with the Revolutionary War and women that served, either they were the camp followers, and that was an official term, these guys that went off to war in the Revolutionary War, um, they, their wives, family members, sisters, somebody followed and did their cooking and did their cleaning, you know, it, those kind of things at the camp, as well as served as nurses. And, but some of these women, uh, didn't want to do that. And they disguised themselves and they took musket balls into the leg and they dug it out themselves <laughs> because they didn't want to get found out for being a woman. One of these women in particular, Deborah Sampson from Massachusetts, she signed up, did exactly that, dug out her musket ball. And later when she ended up getting sick for a whole different reason, she finally was seen by a physician who she had, um, a lung infection. And so, of course, listening to her lungs with a stethoscope, that doctor figured out pretty quickly that was not a man. And uh, so, but he was kind enough to generous, uh, generously recommend her for a uh, honorable discharge. And uh, the governor of the state of Massachusetts ultimately signed her petition to receive a pension as a result of her service in the Revolutionary War. So we go from there all the way to today. And we tell it there are 3 million women that are eligible to have their stories told within our national database and archive that Liz and my story is there. Um, I have on my other screen, I can see Julia Mary Parsons, Lieutenant JG, Navy Waves. Her story is on in our database. And it looks like a big baseball card, if you will. There's a photo and the years you played, what, what branch of service, what team did you play on? For me, it was Army. 
for Julia, it was the Navy waves, right? Is that the Julia that I'm seeing? It is, Julia. Hi, Julia. I see her sitting there. I thought so when I saw that. Hi, am I on? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Oh, okay. Every time I went to the Women's Memorial, they kept saying, have you done anything about your story? And I never did get around to doing anything about it. So somebody did, but I don't know who. <laughs> but I'm glad they did it. It's probably one of us because we talk about the code girls. Yeah. yeah. So so that's all in there talking about. And so as a military intelligence and a German linguist and seeing the, the Enigma machine and you're part of that story, that's amazing. And these are the trailblazers like Liz was talking about earlier. On the shoulders that we stand are women like you and men like you that, that did incredible things in generations past, never asking for anything special and really no recognition. Just it was what needed to be done because our nation needed us. And, and Julia, thank you so much. One, for telling your incredible story into our database and two, for being here tonight. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Is, Julia is, is like, she's with us every night. She knows Zoom better than all of us. Uh, <laughs> and we just recently had her 101st birthday here on Zoom and had an Enigma expert come on for an incredible presentation. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone who'd, who'd be interested in, in reading up on that. Um, but please, Phyllis, uh, continue. Yeah, so one of the other books, another book that, that's really interesting, and it goes along Charlotte's lines, I don't know if you've talked about it yet, is The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. It's a world, mm. world of World War II, and the marvelous Miss Maisel, one of the actresses in there, as a Jewish American, and when she won the award, she went up on the stage and she said, this award is for my grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, that while mm. she was marched to the edge of a pit, and they were, the Nazis were shooting so that the Jews would fall in. She turned, this young woman turns and says to the Nazi guard, what happens if I step out of line and go back to the concentration camp? And the guy said, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. And she knew she was definitely gonna be shot if she stayed. So she turned and she walked back to the, the camp. She was not shot. And so this actress says, if not for what she did that day to just step out of line and go back, I wouldn't be here and my daughters would not be here. So ladies, step out of line, step <laughs> out of line. And the stories that are told of these, not all military women, but women that were spies, women that were military, women that, that surmounted unbelievable, not just for a woman, for anybody, what they did are staggering. And every chapter is one woman's story. Sounds like similar to what Charlotte has in that you can learn in just a short snippet, feel uh -huh. so proud of America. And one of the cha chapters that is in that book, I'm going to pitch to Liz, is an amazing woman called Charity Adams Early. Charity Adams Early. That's right. And in that book, make sure when you buy it, look at page 272. Okay, remember that, 272. Oh, she's like, you know, Lisa has the book and she's page in there. <laughs> that book there, One Woman's Army, is actually the autobiography of Charity Adams Early. She was an amazing woman, okay? I do want to tell you that her son 
Stanley Early lives here in the Washington DC area. Actually, he lives down in uh, Southern Prince George's County. I'm in Northern Prince George's uh, County. Um, and her daughter lives up in um, Ohio. And Charity Adams was the commander of the 6888th Central Postal Directory Battalion. And she was one of the youngest, black or white, youngest commanders on active duty at the time. Get her book, One Woman's Army. It should be on, on every military reading list. It is a great book to read. Um, it, 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 just, it just interjects you with, hey, I can do this if given the opportunity. Okay. Liz, and that, that's all women And Liz, so quickly, in World War II, she was the first woman ever that was commissioned as an officer in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. Yeah, black or white. Right. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and then when she went over, the, she takes this unit of 855 women over first mm -hmm. to England to clear two years worth of backlog, millions and millions of pieces of mail which was the only communications between the people on the yeah. war front and the states. Yeah. And how long did it take them to clear up all of that mail? Uh, the army had given them six months and these women, because of her leadership, strategically planning, they did it in three months there in Birmingham. And then, because you know, with the army, they don't really believe that you do something that good first time. So the army then says, we're gonna send you to Rion, France. And they actually did the same thing. When their backlog was just crazy, gave them six months. And again, this unit of 855 black women did it in three months. And, uh -huh. and they also had to keep doing their soldier skills because they, they were soldiers. They, they were service members. So they still had to do all of the other duties that you do as a service, service person, okay? But they cleared a backlog of what has been estimated of over 17 million pieces of mail. And uh -oh. think about this, this was World War II. How many Joe Jones or Robert Smiths or, or uh, uh, John Jones was was there in the United States alone, okay? Right. And also think of the educational level of most people. Most people could only probably spell their first name and their last name, they probably just put like J, Joe J. And that's how some of the letters and cards or a lot of them was addressed, okay? Johnny Jones or Johnny J or Robert Smith. And, and these women- in Europe and yeah. they had to figure it out. And but these women figured it out, okay? How many, how many women are buried at the Normandy American Cemetery? How many women are there? While, while there, they lost three women. Three women in a auto accident. And I will tell you, when I was stationed in Germany, I did that Normandy tour. And I guess because I was the only black person in the group, 
the caretaker of the Normandy Cemetery comes to me and says, do you know there are three black women buried here? There are only four women buried in Normandy and three of them are black. And so, you know, at the time I didn't know anything about six triple eight. He took me to each of their graves. And they are three, uh, two of them was from New York and one was from uh, Connecticut. And they, again, there are only four women buried in all of Normandy Cemetery and three of them are black women and three, those three belong to the six triple eight Central uh, Post. So Liz, what happened today? Who signed something today? Oh, <laughs> so today, and you know, my phone never rings this many times. You know, it, it never rings this many times. But today, uh, after about, I think it's been two years, maybe, maybe three years, it's been so long now, President uh, Biden signed into law the 6AAA Central Postal Directory Battalion Congressional Gold Medal Act, mm. making the 6AAA the only female military unit, because there are other women, and we don't want to take anything away from any other women, but this was the only female military unit, I got to make sure I say that right, serving in World War II that now have the Congressional Gold Medal. And there are six living members uh, that now know that them and their unit mates are congressional gold medalists. Um, he signed it today. It is law. Congratulations, Liz. And, and earlier I asked you what it felt like to be a part of this legacy, but more interestingly than that, I think, was that before we started the program tonight, you said you didn't know about the 6888 when you enlisted. So when you, So when you found out about these women and the trailblazing that they did, how much more does that question now mean? Now that everybody here also who didn't know about this, this gold medal. Now, now it means this, and, and there's a, a, a photo that was up a few minutes ago of, of me touching uh, the bust of, of Charity Adams. And, and someone always asks me, you know, what, what are you thinking at that point? And I always call this photo the moment. And it is the moment that I realize that that monument, this unit, the 6888, <clears throat> generations will know that the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion also guaranteed their freedom. And so that's what that means to me, that, that now people will know who they are. And, and, and a lot of military people know that there were three people in the military that you did not piss off. You didn't piss off the, the finance people. You didn't piss off the, the cooks and you did not piss off the male people because male 
could make a really bad day a really great day because mail was the connection. And <clears throat> Senator Moran got all of this started with this, this Congressional Gold Medal. When he was speaking about it at the dedication of this monument, he said to them, I didn't even think about it. He says, but the 6888 was really responsible for keeping my parents together. His dad was serving overseas and his mom was back in Kansas raising the kids, working at, I think he said a Sears and Robot company. And she would write him letters and give it to Senator Moran when he was a kid to say, go mail this. And he personally thanked those five women that was there because they kept his parents connected because they did the mail because of that mission that, that they did. And, and I am so proud to be a benefactor of their service. Just so, so proud. And I'm trying not to get emotional. So. Liz isn't saying it, but she is a co-producer of that documentary about the six point that many of you may have seen. Liz has given her last three or four years almost completely to taking care of and ensuring that this congressional gold medal was was done. So fait accompli, but now it sounds like Charlotte's just given us something new to work on this. Yeah. <laughs> Rick Arisman asks, where is that monument located that we just saw? Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Got it. In okay. Buffalo Soldier Park. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. There's also we we didn't get a chance and I know we're a little over time here, but I did want to have time for you to talk about the the US Army Women's Foundation. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Um, and talk a little bit about their mission because that was another reason that you were on with us tonight. So I am, I, Phyllis and I also sit on the Army Women's Foundation board. The Army Women's Foundation is a uh, organization that is, that promotes the public interest of, of the Army and women in, in the Army. Um, it's a great great organization. Uh, they do this through uh, programs, research, scholarships, um, and the foundation recognizes, in fact, that we're, we're going to have the uh, Army Women Foundation Hall of Fame program this month on March 22nd. Uh, and it also supports the Army Women's Museum down at Fort Lee, Virginia. Okay. Uh, the president is Ann McDonald. Okay. We also have a, we also- Let me interject, Liz, if you don't mind. When she sure. says the president is Ann McDonald, Brigadier General, retired Army, class of 1980 West Point. <laughs> First year women were able to complete and graduate from a service academy was in 1980. A lot of people don't realize that women were not allowed to go to service academies. And so this woman was a trailblazer by herself and now is president of this incredible organization. Yeah. And, and we have also legacy scholarships. Um, right now we, we have two. Uh, we're going to have three here in, in the future. Um, and so we promote education of, of women. Um, to better to better them, themselves. We well, promote and the 
the legacy though can and be son's daughter's grandson's granddaughter yeah. of, of an army yeah. woman. Of a army woman. Okay. Uh, it is a just a just an outstanding organization, and I am uh, very proud to be a member of, be, be a board member of. I'm a Hall of Famer there, Liz. Liz and Edna Cummings, her, her partner in crime, the co-producers of the 6888 documentary. Uh, Edna is a uh, retired Army colonel, and Liz is a master sergeant. The two of them, boy, you team those two up together and look out, dynamite happens. It's like throwing grenades all over again, Liz. <laughs> but I have to tell you, the, the, the most meaningful time for them was when the Army Women's Foundation inducted the, the women of the 6888 in, and we were able to be up on the stage and have yeah. actually a member of the 6888 up there yeah. to receive her, her medallion yeah. as, as a member of the, this Hall of Fame. Yeah. And these are the stories that, that I won't lie, the whole time, I did 37 years in the Army, I never once heard of the 6888. And it wasn't until I started working at the Military Women's Memorial just within the last two and a half years. One of the first things I did was I heard there was some kind of an award that these Army women were getting up on Capitol Hill, the Congressional Black Caucus was recognizing, and that was the night I met Liz. Oh, and, yeah, that's right. And yeah. It was up there that yeah. when and Jim Ferris, the director. And Jim Ferris, yeah was that night. It must yeah. have been September or October of 2019. Yeah. 2019, yeah. 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 So and it's funny, this is a small world. And and you know, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to sit and listen to two old soldiers tell our stories all over yeah. again. What yeah. we love about this. And and how can uh, I want to end tonight with playing the trailer of the six triple eight documentary, but before we do, how can people uh, support both the, the Military Women's Memorial and the, the U.S. Army Women's Foundation? Well, both are 501c3s. That means we need donations to, to operate. The good thing about the Army Women's Foundation is that they don't have a physical site that must be operated and maintained. Um, so we get to normally be the venue for that great Hall of Fame induction, but we are closed for renovations right now. So it's a great venue too at the army museum this year, but next year they'll be back with us. So for the army, for the military women's memorial, it's simply womensmemorial.org, womensmemorial, all one word.org. You can learn, we've got huge stories, uh, slide decks, PowerPoints on the 6888 that anybody can take down. It's like a whole curriculum for, for teachers to use as well in the classroom. Uh, yeah. There's a lot more stories than that, but will suffice it. Just go to womensmemorial.org and, and noodle yeah. around in there. Yeah. And then with the Army Women's Foundation, you can you can just Google Army Women's Foundation and click on it and it will come up. And they have um, lots of information there. Uh, if you put your email address in there, you can um, subscribe to get our um, newsletter. It's called Flagpole. Okay. Uh, so check check it out. And uh, it even has a place where you can make a, a donation in honor or in memory or in celebration of, of someone. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. This has been a really, really wonderful program overall, top to bottom, uh, hearing both of your stories and the, the uh, stories of your service. And not only that, but the organizations that you support. And I think it's a, it's a great day for the, for the 6888. So I thought it was appropriate to, to play a bit of the documentary uh, for those of you 
um, who may not know about this documentary, we did have the filmmaker on last year uh, to come on to screen that through VBC. Um, and uh, Liz, where can they find this documentary now? Okay, so if you want to get a copy of, or you'd like to either download it or, or buy the hard copy, you can go to LincolnPennyFilms.com. That is Jim Thais's website, LincolnPennyFilms.com. It's all one word. And you can either download it or you can purchase the, the hard copy um, CD. All right. Well, here we go. And uh, thank you both again for your time tonight. It was an honor and a pleasure. And uh, we you. hope that we will join us again soon. Uh, and without further ado here, I'm going to share my screen and hopefully everyone can hear this. Six triple eight Central Postal Director started in, in Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. We called it six triple eight CPD. That's when I was overseas with six triple eight. We call it the six triple eight. The entire country was mobilized in support of the World War. In July 1943, General Eisenhower had asked for women to be sent to him, and auxiliaries were not allowed to be sent overseas. Um, so at that time, they started to create the WAC bill, the Women's Army Corps bill. I said, the WACs? I said, I had a cousin that was a WAC. She said, really? Many of the women in World War II were recruited because of their skills. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder how much they, they don't really realize what role models they are for the generations of women that come behind them. White people never expected anything of us. You see, so when you got out there and did something that was extraordinary, they said somebody else must have done that. While telling that story and documenting, documenting, what these particular military units, that in most cases were all military, were all black, and most times they had a white commander, but those soldiers still performed at the same level as their white counterparts in terms of defending and providing for the democracy of this country. <laughs> 